a podcast. We don't strive to find the answer to every question or claim to be experts, but if we are able to add just a bit of insight and leave knowing more than what we started, I think we can all agree that we have achieved our goal. Now for today's topics, Alan, I believe you you had the first one. Do you want to get us started here? All right. Yes. So my question is whether or not we have seen a resurgence in the liquor slash alcohol industry and what has been driving that. Back to you, Blake. Well, I, I think there's definitely been a resurgence. Um, as, as some of you know, um, I'm definitely uh, very much in, in the bourbon now. Shameless plug. I have a podcast now called uh, Unbottling Bourbon, but um, at least as far as the bourbon industry is concerned, um, since uh, 2000, the bourbon industry has increased by uh, 360%, at least their bourbon production, just since, you know, two decades ago. Geez, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. I, I do know um, the craft bourbon industry they have also seen a big resurgence, especially just within the last two decades, similar to bourbon. In 2004, craft beer made up about 5% of all beers of all beer sold, and roughly 5% of the revenue was from craft beer. In 2018, that more than doubled, so their market share is roughly uh, 12% of the market, but their revenue quadrupled to roughly uh, 20%. So definitely a big uh, resurgence in the craft beer market as well. And at least from my side, doing some research into this, it seems like a lot of that is due to the millennial aspect. Uh, millennials seem to be more story-driven. It's really easy to create a nice story behind craft beer and bourbon. It's really hard to create a good story about my... Uh, you know, Bud Light or vodka or gin. Like I took this potato and distilled it. <laughs> Here's some vodka. You can tell a really good story about craft beer. A great story about craft beer. You can tell a great story about bourbon, about how my great, great, great grandfather came up with this recipe. It's been in our family for generations. You can tell great stories, uh, but it's hard to tell stories with light spirits and just regular big beer companies does anybody else have any other takes on that i think a big part of it is just the variety that craft beer um allows in branding in marketing and in taste so with a light beer you really i know everybody has their their favorite light beer but once you've had one light beer you've had them all they're all pretty much the same and also i feel like all these light beers are owned by these massive companies that are scared to branch out in fear of alienating their existing customer base. Whereas craft beers are more done by smaller companies, allowing them to try new things, explore new tastes, um, like the, the explosion in the number of IPAs that are available and sold. Um, and then you have double IPAs, various fruity IPAs. There are a million different things you can do. Um, that craft beer allows you to try that makes beer more appealing appealing to people because you can now find the beer you like rather than being shoehorned into just another light beer. So I think 
just the variety and difference in branding plays a a big part in why craft beer has um, exploded. Now, question I have is, I guess the increase in, in craft beers and other small-scale producers of, of alcohol um, growing, you know, that, for, from the research I did, it, it didn't look totally clear that there's necessarily more alcohol consumption today, you know, per capita um, in the U.S., really anywhere in the world, then, you know, it seems like there's been other times, uh, plenty of other times in history where it's been, you know, quite a bit more than it is today. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Does it, I guess if we're saying it doesn't actually increase the consumption, it, maybe to me it sounds like we're saying it kind of adds more depth or, you know, vibrancy to the industry. Um, but I guess what does that really I don't know. I guess can we say the the industry is um, kind of has this new life or whatever if it really isn't actually growing on a you know total scale? I at least personally, I think just the taste of the American populace has changed. So in between the 1960s um, and up into about the 1990s, that generation was really big into light everything light, a healthier lifestyle. They didn't want to drink what their parents drank. They really didn't trust, you know, older adults. They were into, you know, again, your vodkas, gins, light beer, everything light. And then around the 1990s, you see this resurgence of steakhouses. You see resurgence of cigars. Americans started to really love big, bold flavor. So with big, bold flavor, you get into more the IPAs. They got a lot of flavor. You get into bourbon, there's plenty of big, bold flavor in bourbon. I I don't know. I, I would agree with you, Jacob, that it was kind of hard to find some data that suggested the liquor and alcohol industry as a whole is producing way more, but it was obvious to see that the trends of what Americans were drinking has changed drastically in the past two or three decades. I wonder in part if this is due to the accessibility of the uh, of the needed equipment to do, you know, home brewing and things like that. I mean, I think getting like a clean set of home brewing equipment and the necessary ingredients to do it, as well as the proper education. I, I mean, I feel like they're all very accessible nowadays. Um, it's it's almost very easy to get your hands on those materials and then personalize whatever you make to your own tastes. Um, I think there's a certain level of craftsmanship and artisanalness that, that exists in it. And I, I feel like that desire for, I guess, more local production of, of beers and, well, not just beers, but products in general has been rising a bit more. So, I mean, this is just another way for, you know, local communities to generate their own product, I guess. And kind of to piggyback off of what you're saying, Alan, I think there are definitely pros and cons to this. Again, unfortunately, I have a lot, a lot of knowledge in bourbon, so I'll kind of go refer back to that. We're seeing a lot more craft bourbon distilleries pop up, which which is great to help out a local community. The, the only negative aspect of it is, you know, bourbon takes a while to age and to mature. So what a lot of these companies are doing is they're just sourcing their bourbon from other bigger companies and then marketing it as their own, um, which kind of, it, it 
it brings down some of the credibility of bourbon. If you you have a distillery and you're like, here's my bourbon, then you drink it. Um, and you're like, oh, wow, this is this is great. And then you find out after the fact, oh, this was just distilled down in Kentucky. And then you brought it up and you put some staves in it, and then you called it your own. Um, so I think there's some pros and cons to the alcohol industry being more accessible to just the American populace in general. That's an interesting point. But if we look back historically, I mean, if you look at wine from a while ago, um, like people used to like from from high like from areas that would be considered to be of high production value now, uh, like let's let's take France for example. I mean, a long time ago, you had people who would cut wine with with God knows what because you wanted to cut corners and get out as much as you could. Um, but I mean, since then, France and almost all the EU comp- countries that are big for wine production, they have very strict laws on how wine can be produced and classified and things like that. Um, I mean, is there, are we maybe just on one side of the cycle and eventually we'll end up on the other side where we see higher regulation in the future then to protect quality? I, I think we will. I, at, at least can, you kind of touched on this. Um, I, I know for bourbon, um, I think the regulation came in the late 1800s where they made a, what was called the Bottle and Bond Act, which uh, set a strict uh, set of regulations that said this is what a bonded bourbon should be. It has to be 100 proof, has to be the product of one distillation season, has to be made by one distiller, um, has to be new charred oak American barrels, has to be aged for four years, has to be at least 100 proof. Um, that was said in the late 1800s because similar to wine, bourbon was getting a bad rap. People would take neutral grain spirit and just spit you know, maybe tobacco in there or add some off flavored colorings, you know, to, to make it taste better. But, you know, with as the higher proof you go, especially when you're talking whiskeys and, and moonshine, you really need to be careful on how that's made. Because if you're not careful, uh, again, we all pretty much know this. What can be a byproduct of ma- making ethanol? You can get methanol and then you can get methanol poison, go blind and die. So that was a big reason of why the Bottle and Bond Act um, came into play. Um, as far as other regulation, I have seen um, some potential regulation for bourbon in regards to sourced bourbon. Uh, currently, right now, on a bottle of bourbon, you just need to say where it's distilled. I think it's produced at. So you can, if... You take a sourced bourbon and you bottle it. You just say, this was a product of our company. And then you leave it at that, and, and it's very vague. So now they want to say, hey, this is where your bourbon's distilled at. To give more transparency to the consumer, I know I bought a bottle of Angel's Envy the other day. Angel's Envy has their own distillery uh, that they built, I think, in 2013. But I looked at the bottle and it just said distilled in Kentucky and produced by Angel's Envy. So I looked into it more, and it's not Angel's Envy's juice. It's probably Heaven Hill's juice or, or Jim Beam's juice. And by juice, I mean bourbon. So um, I, I think having more regulations in the industry will give more consumer confidence to hopefully still propel this 
resurgence forward into the future. Take kind of a, a step back to the beer topic too. Just some interesting history there. I know in, in the 1500s in Germany, there was a real strict order on the ingredients in beer. Um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, but in German, it means the purity order. Um, and it mandated back in starting in 1516 that you could only use water, barley, and hops in beer. So I think that was a original, you know, mandate to try to get away from maybe they were having issues with who knows what contamination in beer or finding that they were going away from the styles that were favored or whatever it might be. Um, obviously today beer has grown a lot way past that. Um, and I think the, the craft beer industry might've even kind of ran with that, that moving beyond the, the previous view of beer being the light, you know, Budweiser, you know, lightly hopped things that were common in the middle of the 20th century to current where, you know, it's very common to find a heavily hopped beer or a, you know, lots of different varieties of beer. Um, but that had a, a similar, I guess, uh, founding principle back in, in Europe when there was some attempt to try to stabilize what was in beer. And Alec, I, I think kind of moving your topic back to, I guess, more more current times now, do you think, I, I know, you know when we first got prohibition in, I believe that was around uh, 1920, it was illegal to manufacture your own craft beer um it actually a lot of people think it it was alcohol wine just just anything related to alcohol is completely illegal uh based on the 18th amendment uh of prohibition but that's actually not true it was still legal to consume it was just illegal to produce it didn't seem it, it seems like um from the 1920s to Around uh, mid-1975, there really wasn't any uh, craft brewing at home because it was still considered illegal, so it was all kept on the down low. But in 1978, um, our federal government said it was now legal to homebrew your beer, and then they sent that out to the states to you know, ratify any way they wanted to to set conditions how many gallons could you homebrew for yourself obviously you can't sell that legally but you'd still homebrew do you think that law in 1978 helped propel the craft beer industry or do you think we'd still be in the same spot we are here today even without that 1978 ruling i i can't say i know too much about that uh that ruling but i mean i would i would have to imagine it only helped you know deregulating it and allowing you know, these kind of at-home brewing kits and and some other um, you know, actual businesses to pop up around that home brewing space. I mean, I imagine that only helped them do that. And, and I think, you know, today maybe we can see or we will see or are seeing uh, you know, a similar um, kind of growth in the, the marijuana industry. And as that kind of comes out of being a uh, prohibited substances in a lot of parts of the U.S. and, and you know maybe we'll have a, an interesting comparison here in, in a few decades that we compare can compare. The- yeah, I know with current numbers, uh, there's a, around a million people in the U.S. that currently actively homebrew beer. So and it is a a giant interest base. Um, and I think 
so on that kind of timeline wise, so, you know, it's legalized in 1978 and I you know, don't have any hard proof. I definitely would imagine that would encourage people to then be seeking out new types of beer because that, you know, you don't want to just make your Budweiser style beer at home. And then if, once you're used to making that and you hear friends are making that, you might be more apt to try different styles when you're out at the brew pub too. Another piece that I think too, you know, with the resurgence really starting in this kind of late nineties and really increasing in the early two thousands lines right up with the period of, you know, internet growth and more able to find small businesses that might not have the marketing potential that your Budweiser's and your Miller's had to, you know, increase customers. So if you're in a new area, you could use the internet perhaps to find new places to have a craft brew beer does that seem to make sense to everyone too i think absolutely not just uh find places to get one but you know, the manufacturers the people actually making it you can now go learn online uh how to to do so or learn about you know someone else who has a microbrewery and what they're doing and, and that could be inspiring so yeah i think it works on many fronts probably the internet has uh, been able to advance this movement yeah, and I'm sure like uh, hobbyists form form groups online and things like that. That gives a, a better exchange for for free flow of uh, of like personal tips and tricks and things like that that might work their way into to become standards or something. You know, it, it really just gives a better alignment on on experimentation and development of new techniques. So I mean, uh, that's another point to take into account is. Uh, it's just the natural growth once we have free information flow. And and not to change gears here, I, I know Alan's probably chomping at the bit to talk more about wine, but I do have a, a question. Um, this might be more aimed at Alan because he might have some more knowledge on it. But uh, Judgment of Paris in 1976, do you think that had a big impact on the way Americans saw wine? Maybe. I... I, I can't say i'm familiar with this okay so 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 judge yeah sorry to put you on the spot alan so so judgment of parents judgment of paris 1976 Uh, oh uh, yeah is it coming back to you now yeah california yep california wine versus french wine i think the french wine they took a lot of it from uh uh, burgundy and bordeaux kind of areas and it was supposed to be more of a educational blind taste testing just to show hey this is how far americans have come uh with their wine production but i think there's a times reporter there and he completely i wouldn't say fabricated but he viewed the blind educational tasting more like a competition because it had all these big french critics there and he was like this is american wine versus french wine I know that made a lot of those critics upset because they thought they were there just for fun. And he kind of, I guess, altered the story to basically make it show like a competition. And I think the American wine beat out the French wine, according to him. So um, I didn't know if that um, kind of brought resurgence back in the United States now that, oh, we make some great wine. I need to taste some of that because I was used to the the French wine or I thought the French made the best wine but it looks like the United States makes better wine or just as good wine as as the French. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, it made a big difference at least in the states. Um, 
I mean, it really put California on the map of, uh, of U.S. wine production. I mean, I think there was always, there is a bit of a stigma that, you know, it's the U.S., it's young. Um, so therefore, the wine, it hasn't had the chance to develop and doesn't have the same history as a lot of these other wines that you see from, uh, from European countries. So, I mean, uh, yeah, blown out of proportion by an American. I, I think that, uh, that I, I haven't done enough research, but that's, uh, I mean, yeah, that could, that could be the case. But, um, I mean, at least as far as the American wine industry, it just really established that there was quality wines being made here. Um, and I think it definitely piqued a lot of Americans' interest and got them to look closer to home for wine supply. Um, and quality. And I mean, when you think about the current uh, California uh, landscape for wine, I mean, it's it's considered to be, you know, uh, like the peak production areas for wine in the U.S. Um, coming from California. So, I, I mean, I think that history has stuck, and it really helped the U.S. put the put their foot in the door as far as wine production. But I mean, even now you see uh, all these other countries start to uh, start producing wine, like uh, even India and China. Like, I mean, you wouldn't know it, but uh, they, they produce quite a bit of wine themselves. Um, I mean, you're not going to see that in a supermarket, but uh, I mean, all you need is, is some event like that that really just establishes yourself as a, you know, as a world class production uh, and uh you suddenly see this huge blossoming uh, in in your local industry. So, and and do you think that I guess the the wine sommeliers nowadays have have helped I guess guide and educate and educate the public enough to I guess bring more people to wine. I, I forget exactly when um, the association of wine sommeliers came into existence, but I thought that was in recent history. Um, but do you think that has helped the wine industry move move forward and, and gain, um, I guess, more customers? I don't know about customer base, but I mean, I think it has helped establish the U.S. as, uh, as a big player in the wine industry. Um, I mean, obviously having an an organization that is so prestigious that has uh, uh, where where Americans are so involved uh, that makes quite a difference um, and you know you see Somalia you see world-class Somalis everywhere and uh, having an association that uh, has quite the American base uh, it uh, it definitely helps establish some uh, subject matter expertise I suppose in the country um, and uh, lend some credibility to your production. I, I don't know about the impact on actual consumers because, um, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think the average consumer is too tied into what some Somalia is, is, is doing on a regular basis. But, um, no, I think it just lends to, uh, to the credibility. I think that's the big impact. But uh, I, I guess that feeds back to the original points about uh, maintaining credibility. Um, that we that we discussed a bit earlier, um, and, and where that might eventually lead to. And and I know one of your your side points too, relating to uh, climate change, 
Um, do you think that's affected the wine industry negatively? Or what are your, your, your thoughts on that? I, I know you kind of brought that up earlier. Yeah, wine change is a bit of a mixed bag. I, I mean, you it, it opens up new areas for potential growth of grapes. Um, but at the same time, it starts to really strangle the areas that are already producing grapes. Um, or at least force you to consider new varieties uh, of grapes to grow um, that, that meet or, or that better match the current environment um, and climate conditions. Um, yeah, it's it, it's going to be quite a big challenge for the wine industry, um, especially considering the history there and the, the kind of time established practices. Um, but therein also lies a potential area for growth. But I, I guess it feeds to a, a greater underlying issue, which is that climate change is affecting the, you know, uh, how how these grapes are farmed and raised and things like that. Um, yeah. I think an interesting one is California, though, like the increased wildfires that has a massive impact on uh, on grapes, um, just because you get residual soot and things. Uh, affecting your crops um even outside of the normal temperature variations so but anyway sorry there was there was another point that was going about to be brought up yeah i was just gonna say i don't know uh as much on grapes specifically but you know with the changing climate um i think one challenge that the wine industry could see is as alan mentioned you know some places that are good for growing now perhaps won't be good for growing grapes in the future in some places that aren't necessarily known or good for growing grapes now may be good in the future. Uh, you know, but I, I think it's tough to see it as being a, a net positive for the wine industry just because it's a lot of disruption, I think, is you know, what may happen here um, where you have again, regions that are not traditionally growing grapes now are to grow grapes, but, you know, perhaps the processing facilities needed to make wine are not located near these areas where they need to be you know, constructed and totally new. Um, so just a lot of change that has to occur that I, I just think is probably not, it's probably a little too much change um, in a short period of time. And, and like so many issues related to uh, change in climate, I think that would most likely you know, be more of a challenge for um, the wine industry than any kind of benefits that we get through finding new growing areas and new markets. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Uh, not to under, yeah, not to uh, make, not, just to make sure I wasn't being clear, like this is this is a big issue for, for wine. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, I could see this being an issue in areas where they produce really high quality wines more than anything, where there are very strict laws about what types of grapes you can grow. Because if you have to change your variety of grape um, and it goes against, you know, the, the kind of controlled laws on, on what types you can grow. Um, I mean, you could be killing yourself with your, with the strictness of your requirements, but, uh, I don't know. Is this a, now I know this, this is an issue in the wine production industry, but, uh, have we seen anything similar in, uh, in beer or in, in, uh, grain liquors? I, I guess as far as. You know, your grain liquors or, or bourbon is concerned. There, 
at least as of right now, I haven't seen a problem with it. And, and the only reason I can say that, and I haven't done a whole bunch of research about it, is uh, bourbon, they, they use corn, and they just use field corn. Um, may, maybe some of you might know, but I grew up in a very rural area of Ohio. So there's there's many different types of corn. You got specific sweet corn. That's not just regular corn you see out in a field. That's a certain variety of corn that a farmer will grow. So you got sweet corn, you got popcorn. There's a whole bunch of different types of corn, but uh, bourbon uses just regular field corn. So the reason I, I I'm suggesting that climate change hasn't impacted the bourbon industry is because I haven't seen a field corn impact. I guess I haven't seen a negative field corn impact just by climate change. I, I think I would have uh, saw that on the news or, or maybe heard some rumblings, you know, whenever I go back home. But um, I haven't, I, I don't think climate change as of yet has really affected the just the field corn market in in general um but I'm, I'm not sure about um craft beer if that has affected the the hops industry yet and i don't know alec if you were able to have some insight on that or yeah I, I i'm not really sure in regards to hops if climate change has affected that yet yeah i, I know hops are actively being grown in more places than they used to be I don't know if that's effective, just uh, more areas attempting to grow them or if it's uh, climate change allowing them to be grown. But they are, I think, a similar to grapes. They are a crop that really thrives at a very specific latitude. So I, I can definitely see that they could be similarly affected, though. Yeah, haven't they recently started to grow hops in Michigan? And that's in the past like few years, they haven't grown hops before in the Michigan area, but it seems to yeah, be... Yeah, I think f formerly, yeah, hops were, in the U.S. at least, were exclusively in the Pacific Northwest type part of the country, I think. Um, and then northern Michigan is now growing them, which is a a new new area for sure. I I guess, does, does anybody else have any uh, uh, additional insight they, they want to bring up on this topic before uh, we uh, move on to, to Noah's topic of discussion? Okay, well, um, thank you guys for uh, that discussion on the resurgence of the wine, craft beer, and uh, liquor industry. Uh, now we will move on to uh, Noah's topic. So, uh, Noah, what would you like to discuss today? All right, so my question is, in today's era of increased partisanship and polarization, what can be done to bring um, opposite parties closer together and as a whole, just make the government more functional and better working. So I'll, I'll kick off with this one. The way I see it, the main problem is that the people who vote most reliably do not want the government to be less partisan and less polarized. They just want other people to agree with them more rather than being willing to cede to more of a middle ground. So I think one of the one of the things that could be done to try to combat this is to try to change um, how the primary system works. Because right now 
most people just do not vote in primaries and the people that do vote in primaries are the people most connected to the party and the the ideologues the far left and far right lacking better terms to speak to them so i guess the question is twofold what can be done to sort of i guess reduce their in, reduce primaries influence and what can be done to get more people to vote in primaries and more average people to vote in primaries to try to get more centrist candidates on the ballot. Well, well, Noah, I, I did a little bit of research on this. Um, it, it's really it's really hard to, to answer that question. I, I know that within the past three decades, a lot of our political geography has switched. So now more than ever, you see completely red states or completely blue states. So in completely red states, the Republican, they know I'm I pretty much I, I'm going to win no matter what. Whatever happens, I'm going to win. That's the same in blue states. Democrats say, well, I can do, you know, no Republican's going to beat me. I'm, I'm fine. So th the issue they're seeing is that the only way they get beat out is within their own party. And the only way that happens is if they seem to be more bipartisan because now they're moving more into the middle. So now somebody else within the Republican Party or Democratic Party, uh, we'll just say Republican, for instance, they say, well, he worked out with the Democrats on this issue. So we want another Republican to move in and not do that. So now it's their prerogative to not be bipartisan. So they're just going to vote along party lines every time to stay in office. So I don't know how we necessarily get away from that. And I, I hate to, I guess, continue to add questions instead of solutions to, to Noah's, Noah's question here. But um, at least doing some, some of my research, a lot of the solutions they came up with were very superficial or very vague. And, and in my opinion, I don't think really really would help yeah i'm not i'm not really sure yeah one solution blake that probably fits right along that thread but i found interesting for a thought experiment at least was the idea of kind of beneficial gerrymandering to try to form districts that are more evenly split which is an impossible task seemingly but an interesting one that if you were able to form districts that were not you know Gerrymandered, gerrymandered by the you know parties and were instead by an impartial basis attempting to at least give some competitiveness in these local races maybe you could drive a little bit more you know centrist candidates perhaps or at least candidates that are willing to have discussions and not just only speak to their people that they know are going to vote for them right and i i, I think too roughly three decades ago as well, it, it seems like we saw the change to just partisan lines or party lines around the 1990 mark. Uh, before that, you saw a lot of at least uh, a lot of the research I did was just based on the Senate. So I believe roughly half of the Senate, those states were split. So you'd have one senator from Ohio was Republican. The other senator was Democrat. So then there was more incentive to be to come up with bipartisan solutions so you could help out your state 
that that was one of the main reasons that they would you know compromise on things well now there's only 12 senators total that well you know six senators have their counterpart be of the other party so 12 senators total um are split where you know the other 88 senators they're either both republican or both democrat so again there's no incentive for them or very little incentive to compromise or uh, come up with bipartisan solutions so like just to kind of put that in another light basically we're saying that out of the 50 united states states 44 of them are only represented by one party. We only have six where there is you know, a bipartisan team Correct. in the Senate. Correct. That's crazy. I don't know. Do we happen to see any uh, demographic correlations between the two? There, there's definitely geographic correlations. So oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. the, the, the Northeast, uh, very democratic. Um, the South... Southeast, I believe, is Republican. It seems like a lot of things have shifted. It, it seems kind of Midwest is kind of the area where you see a little bit more swing states, where Ohio is has been a swing state. It seems recently they're, they're looking more red, but if you look geographically, there is very distinct areas that are completely red or completely blue. The, the big trend recently over the past decade or so has been rural areas becoming more and more Republican and urban areas becoming more and more Democratic. Makes sense. Um, which is why a state like Ohio, where Democrats used to do fairly well in rural Ohio, rural Ohio has become less swingy and more red as those um, rural areas become more solidly Republican and the blue cities in Ohio just are not enough to have the Democrats win a statewide election. So it seems that your only chance now for a state that has a bipartisan Senate representation is one that has both a large urban population and a large rural population, potentially. Or how could that even come to be then, I guess is kind of my question. Right, I think um, that's certainly one way. Or you have these weird senators like... Sherrod Brown from Ohio, who is actually quite liberal, but he kind of has that like working class appeal, I guess. So he gets elected, um, you know, someone like Susan Collins in Maine, who's a Republican in a fairly blue state. But again, she's very moderate. So, uh, you know, she wins pretty easily in her elections. And, you know, you have some of these oddball, uh, just really skilled politicians um, who can get elected uh, through that manner. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's in general. Um, and also the Senate, you know, each senator from a state, they're not just one senator is going to be elected in an election cycle in general. You know, Georgia, there's there's some ex- uh, recent examples that were not um, that way, but those were oddball scenarios. And, and really what it should be, uh, you only have one senator being elected at a time. And, you know, with that, I mean, just national politics shifts. So, you know, in 20, for example, taking Georgia again in 2020, there was two Democratic senators elected there in the 2022 upcoming election. Um, you know, I'm sure the the Vegas line will be that the incumbent, uh, Raphael Warnock, is going to be a heavy underdog and will probably lose, and then that will become a bipartisan Senate state. And, and to be honest, Jacob, I'm surprised you didn't bring up uh, Senator uh, Joe Manchin, who's been the big holdout you know, for the Big Back uh, Build Back Better plan um, from West Virginia. 
Um, I, yeah, be- yeah, no, he's definitely another example of someone who, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's, uh, seems to be obviously a skilled politician and you know, one of the most Republican states that he still gets elected as a Democrat. It's pretty frustrating. Mm. He is, he is extremely in touch with what is popular and what is not in West Virginia. Mm. Um, and then that's how he manages to still win elections there, just by paying close attention to opinion polling and rejecting the Democratic Party on areas that on questions and topics that he don't think will fly in West Virginia. But he's he's one of a very few that is actually willing to go against the party line nowadays. Yeah, I, I thought it was extremely I- impressive. I, I thought he was going to get talked into compromising some of, I don't know if I want to say West Virginia's values, but he seemed to be very, you know, like you said, Noah, sure of what his state wanted, you know, why he was elected and to show those values um, in, in the Senate. It, I, so I think a lot of people uh, really like to kind of put Manchin on a pedestal. Um, so I'm just going to have to be that guy, be the devil's advocate. I'm actually not as impressed with his politics for the reason that I, I think a lot of people look at him as standing up. I don't view it as that at all. He has all the leverage in the world because basically here's the situation with him is he, like we said, he's in a very red state where the party he is a part of will lose if he does not run, period. They're not getting another, unless they get, I don't know, a clone of him, they're going to lose and they're going to lose bad in this state. And in this 50-50 Senate we have here, basically he can say, look, I'm the tiebreaker vote. You do what I say, and if you don't, that's fine. I just will vote no. And, okay, yeah, you can trash me. Good luck. That just means now you're going to get someone who agrees with you even less in the next election cycle if I lose. So that, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you're going to do what I say, or I'm just not going to give you my vote. And it's So I, I, I'm not saying he's a bad politician. I'm just saying he has a lot more leverage right now. than, And that's, that's why he can go on all the talk shows and do all the PR stuff that he does, because he has a ton of leverage. There's really no threat to him because if the Democrats trash him, great. Now he's going to lose. And there's someone who agrees with them less. And he can do his kind of, I'm just going to vote how I want. And I'm going to, because I know that's what the people of West Virginia will require of me to get reelected is that I'm going to have to, you know, fuck the Democratic trend pretty often because these people are not Democrats. So I think we've been focusing a lot on the, the local, you know, how did these non-bipartisan representation happen i think another question is that might be there to stay how does this you know how does the government still function with this type of bipartisanship non-bipartisanship you know in our electorate um and i'll kick this off with just some interesting findings i had from a a committee in congress that no one's probably heard of before um it's called the select committee on the modernization of Congress. So I thought this was interesting. The Congress themselves have definitely identified this as a problem. And this, this committee, one of their goals is to attempt to address this, you know, lack of bipartisan support. The unfortunate side is a lot of the recommendations are not going to do anything to fix these problems. Unfortunately, you know, they're, they're focused on silly things like, attempting to add conference room space for congressmen of different parties to have space to talk to each other. Just things that we would all assume as voting members of the population are just 
things that a functioning government should be doing. You know, is there any things that we can think would be better than that to actually help our, you know, current, you know, spread of politicians actually cooperate and make things happen? Well, uh, well again, Alec, I, I think it. Oh, oh, sorry, Alan. I'll, I'll let you take it. Well, I was, guess I was going to answer, ask a question and, and counter to that question. I mean, do you think that there may have been politicians who've tried to slow down the process, though, just because it's more beneficial to hold things up and keep things in this kind of bureaucratic limbo forever? Yes. Yeah. So, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I see this as an additional layer of, of bureaucracy almost. I mean, I think the direction is good. But uh, it's another point that's going to be developed or debated to death, I suppose. If if there's no incentive for a senator to be bipartisan, then there's no point in them doing it. And and I think right now there 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 really isn't, um, unfortunately. Again, in you know big red Republican states that they know a Democrat's not going to win, why be? Why compromise on any issues when you know that could get you, you know, unelected the next election cycle? The the same with Democrats, too. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like a lot of it comes back to the voters um, and, and how we vote. But it, it it's really difficult to, you know, change everybody's mindset to, hey, we should try to compromise, especially with a lot of these very divisive issues right now if you're very if like uh for example um abortion it it, it's like pro-life or or pro-choice it's kind of hard for those moral i guess issues to have kind of a gray area it's very difficult for some of the the hot button items to kind of have a good compromise area and those are the issues that we're we're focusing on right now so until we kind of get away from those issues it's seems to be really hard to, to compromise. I, I don't know if anybody sees it the same way I do. Yeah, you said earlier that a bunch of things have, or some things have been tried to try to bring people closer together and parties closer together, and none of them have really shown much of an effect at all. So I've, I've got scribbled down over here a couple off-the-wall ideas that, uh, I don't know, that haven't been tried yet. One was, um, surprisingly enough for somebody in my politics, actually proposed by Donald Trump, of making social media companies legally responsible for what is posted on their websites. Now, Donald Trump didn't realize this, but this would have the effect of just killing all the big social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, anything else you want to name, because they have no way to track or moderate what is actually posted to their pl platforms, so... And these have been, these, these social media sites have been largely responsible for both true information and disinformation that drives people further apart and drives people into more partisan conspiratorial thinking. So that, that could be one thing to try to bring people closer together. Another I had, where I'm not really sure what the effects of this would be, but mandatory voting. Um, one of the problems is primary voting. Most people don't show up, and the ones that do are the people most politically in tune and most politically opinionated. If we made voting mandatory, would that have the effect of having more centrist candidates as more centrist voters 
are brought into the fold. So those are two more radical solutions I could think of that are less trying to tinker with existing structures and more actually trying to sweep an over overarching change at the underlying issues. So I don't know what if you guys have any ideas like that or what you think of those ideas. Yeah, I've heard about the kind of forcing the social media companies to have more responsibility for what's posted on their platforms. And I know um, sometimes you hear it's called Section 238, and it's a uh, basically gives social media companies immunity for what's posted on their their platforms. Therefore, they can't be, I believe it's like they can't be charged with copyright or or things like that. Um, And yeah, I I think I'm, I'm with you, Noah. I mean, it it seems like that seems like a you know a nice oh we'll just get rid of that and then they they're going to be responsible but uh, you know it's I think then you either are looking at something where well they won't let you post anything because all of it has too much potential as copywritten material or you know it would have to be really really narrowed down in what could be put on any social media site or really on the internet in general um, because that, that company would have to be positive that this is not going to get them in legal trouble. Or the other way is you kind of don't have any self-regulation on these, these social media sites like they do now with fact checkers and that. Um, and if, you know, it's just kind of a, a haven for free speech or whatever. But then, you know, is that really the Internet we want to where it's just, you know, every time you open the Internet, it's just pornography and hate speech and you know, black market items basically proliferate. And because there's not no, you know, no one's, I guess, kind of controlling anything and you can do and say and post whatever you want. I, I don't think that's really uh, what we want either. So yeah, I, I think that seems like a kind of a short, uh, a small minded um, solution. Um, I I have a couple, so I, I look at this topic a little out of the box, I think. Um, I, I'd like to get your guys' opinions. So I, I think these kind of changes in government structure um, and voting structure um, are, you know, potential I look at them, I guess, more as remedying the illness rather than getting someone back, getting our government back to, um, and our American society back to full health. Uh, it, to me, that's that's kind of how I view it, is it's really remedying the, the illness uh, symptoms rather than addressing the problem at its core. And to me, I think the, the biggest issue is our politics have become too just kind of stupid um and what i mean by that is we don't apply them enough at a local level uh i think we just it's it's becoming coming increasingly so that we only look at through this political lens from a, a kind of a national view um and i just think that makes us all a lot stupider uh and so for me i think the biggest issue we can address to mitigate partisanship is we need to have greater local communities. And I think a huge part of that is having strong local journalism and local news. Um, and I think that's something we don't see anymore, or that's that's increasingly um, getting eroded. We see so many local newspapers, um, and I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I've seen a vast reduction in newspapers, newspapers closing, or if they're not closing, they're downsizing staff. Um, and I think this is really bad because not only do you lose uh, you know, the ability of these investigative journalists to find out when your local 
you know, city council is embezzling money or, you know, engaging in other corrupt acts or finding out when the, you know, the, the local plant uh, you know, had some sort of spill and, and is trying to, to cover that up, you know, but you also, you just lose kind of that connection to the, your neighbors. Um, you don't know what festivals are happening. You don't know when there's a new restaurant opening. It, that all and some of that gets replaced by social media, but I think a lot of it doesn't. And I think it also helps if if there is a source that all of us are who live in this community together are all receiving that same source's information um, and, and kind of have some sort of baseline uh, foundation that's that's all the same. I, I think that's really important, and I, I'm really sad and you know, disturbed that that isn't to me, does not seem to be a priority for either major political party in the U.S. I frankly don't see the Democrats really making much of an attempt to um, stand up for local journalism or certainly not make it a, a key platform that I, I think it deserves. And I mean, the Republicans, I mean, we just had Trump a few years saying that the press is truly the enemy of the people. So I think that's all we really need to say about that side of the aisle. Um, I don't think either political party really even gives a shit. And I'm not sure if we're allowed to say that on the show, so I apologize for not. But I think that's really dangerous that we don't have, and not even making an attempt with the major political parties to support local journalism and um, local news. And then, furthermore, you know, I, I think there's an erosion of our local institutions. Uh, you know, so many areas where we used to have kind of these bipartisan dialogues, and, and you would interact with people who were so much different than you, maybe politically or religiously or culturally, whatever it may be, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of erosion with those, you know, while, and especially I think that's been uh, heightened over COVID. And I think we see that too, and in, in the increased partisanship right now, because rather than going into the office or going into school and interacting with all these different people, now we're doing it through Zoom and online, and we're not interacting with them anywhere near as much. We're not interacting in person. And therefore, we don't have as much of an exchange of ideas, get to understand how so other people think who think differently than us. Um, and you see it in lessening of the influence of religion in our communities. You know, as we have fewer churches, as fewer people go to church, you know, that's another place where we used to have a lot of uh, commingling of people with different ideas. We don't see that any as much anymore. Um, you know, same with neighborhoods. I mean, I'll be honest, I... I couldn't tell you any of the neighbors uh, that I've had in like 15 years. I don't know any of them. And, and I don't think that's healthy. But, uh, you know, I, so I think, you know, block parties and just kind of getting to know the people we actually live around. That's excellent. And, it, you know, it doesn't happen anymore and, or it happens less. And, it, you know, instead it gets replaced by social media and Internet chat rooms and other places where you can have these information silos where you just keep hearing the same ideas uh, over and over again from people who think similar to you. Because all you have to do, if you don't want to hear someone who thinks differently than you, you just, you know, don't add them as a friend. Don't follow them, whatever the term may be for that particular platform. Um, so I think that's really the heart of the issue. I think if we address these issues at a local level and empower our local communities through better local journalism and better local institutions, that will go the farthest. Uh, I, I think that is the only solution uh, for reducing partisanship. And, and I think more importantly, just getting people to critical think, because, you know, right now we have issues with social media and the entertainment stations, a.k.a. the cable news stations, uh, who, you know, just want to make us stupid. Um, and I, I think that's a real problem. And I'm, I'm disappointed that 
so many of our politicians are happy to play into that by going on, uh, you know, these cable news networks and, and spewing nonsense um, to just make the, the public stupider and less engaged in their communities and more engaged at arguing with their uh, family members on Facebook. That's that's my rant. And, and Jacob, kind of to piggyback off of what you were just talking about, I guess related to the news, I, I think at least from my perspective, and somebody can disagree with me if they want, it's really hard to find unbiased news sources. So I, I remember, you know, when President Trump, you know, said, you know, journalism is after him. There, there is definitely a, a shred of truth to that to, to some regard, just for the fact there's really not very many Republican news outlets. You, you basically got Fox and every other large media outlet out there is is democratic so all those other news um media outlets are going to have a democratic spin on it and make him look worse in 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 my opinion and then now you kind of see the flip of that and obviously fox is like biden's biden's terrible but then the rest of the news outlets aren't as overly critical of the biden administration which which makes sense since they lean democratic and at least Personally, I, I thought NPR was going to be my most unbiased source of news, but they're they're pretty liberal in my opinion. So what I what I normally do is I just bounce around between CNN and Fox to try to find some sort of middle ground. And um, I'd be kind of curious to see, you know, what everybody's take on on that is or, or what news sources that you use to try to get. I guess, actual news and not just unbiased opinions. Because even I know in, in some local news, depending on where you are, there is still some spin on, you know, when up in my rural community, it's more conservative, but down where I live now, a lot of the topics are, you know, liberal since I live in a city. So um, I'd be kind of curious to see what your guys' take on that to try to get as much unbiased news as possible and then you get the facts and then you can form your own opinions instead of having somebody form the opinions for you and kind of forcing them on you. I agree with you. The only the only real way to do it is to try to get news from a spectrum of places and try to filter out, read them against each other and filter out what's true and what's not. But that's very time consuming and takes a lot of effort. And most people don't have the uh, the time or the will or the willingness to do something like that. And yeah, it's it's a real problem. Um, in the second half of the 1800s, some French guy, his name's totally escaping right now, came to study America to see why democracy worked on a national level in America, which at the time was pretty unique. Um, the only other place that really did it was France, which was collapsing every couple decades. And the things he discovered were, to build on the point you made earlier, um, one, there was no national news source. Americans got their news locally. And two, not only did America's national, gover uh, national and state governments practice democracy, but Americans participated in all sorts of local institutions, such as churches, associations, clubs, that also, um, perform also operated democratically. Um, by electing a council of leaders and stuff like that. So people were involved in democracy, not only on a big governmental level, but also in their day-to-day -day lives, they were participating in, in the acts of democracy and compromise. And both of those things are totally gone, like you said. Um, and it's a real problem. There seems to be 
no effort or no no effort to get them back and very little real concern that they're gone obviously i i uh, i agree with that statement though um <laughs> i don't need to rehash my 10 minute monologue again um you know and as far as the having these biased news sources i i don't know that i actually think that's a problem i think we just need strong well-researched journalism i'm more concerned i guess about sources that are not well-researched journalists and people with poor training who are using poor sources and don't know what they're doing putting out information i think that's far more destructive and there's plenty of that unfortunately um but you know i i think what i i think is most uh Maybe where the biggest difference is in different news sources is not so much the information. Like I, I really, I don't find that when I read an article from CNN and then one from Reuters and then one from Fox News that I'm getting a very different story on the baseline facts. I think the difference obviously comes in when the, the opinions come in. Um, and you know, but I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily a problem. I, I think we want to have kind of vibrancy of thought and ideas and, and a lot of different ideas. We just need to have um, those who are providing the news, who are providing this information, who are collecting it um, to do thorough, trustworthy and, and valuable journalism. Um, and I just, I think a lot of the current institutions we have to spread news, again, cable news, um, are well, if Trump wanted an enemy of the public, I, I think those would be a good place to start. Um, I think they do a great job as being the enemy of uh, any kind of coherent intellectual thought. I don't know. I think we're underselling the danger that lives in the the salesmanship between putting news out uh, for putting news out there. I mean, if someone someone can spin an objectively mild story to be more than it is, um, and rile up a crowd. I mean, I think there is some danger to that. I mean, obviously, like the, I agree that that the bigger issue at hand is uh, is that there are a lot of unsourced, quote on, you know, there's unsourced pieces of, of, of information floating out there um, that could very well be completely and utterly false. Um, but even the things that are true or, or based on hard established facts they can be spun in such a way that they're almost no more better than the facts that they're based on or sorry than complete and utter lies seems like there you know there's an education piece to all this too you know go back to the statement a little while ago of people don't have the time or want to think too hard before they consume and I don't know, I'm of the opinion that you shouldn't have to, you know, that I agree there should be a way to consume knowledge without, without bias on it. But that is a very utopian statement to make. That's not something that's possible. I don't know what the solution is other than just educating people that everything that they're reading will have a spin and, you know, acknowledging that there is a difference of opinion and maybe even encouraging that i think the, the going back to the polarization topic i think we're we've been talking about this polarization topic in a negative connotation and i think that's 
typically how it's viewed, but maybe just a increased acceptance of the people have different views and you can still have a discussion with them will make, you know, journalism easier to consume or maybe journalism less, you know, opinion based. I don't know. I think there just needs to be something there to turn it around. I guess that's the big question, though. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of news outlets, you know, uh, they profit more from, you know, publishing stories that interest people rather than uh, publishing, you know, objective statements about things. Um, so, I mean, it, it's hard to make something that would be objectively consumable because then you, you start to lose the interest of your audience or the guy who says something slightly more interesting will will get the money instead. So, I mean, this kind of comes back to competition of industry, um, where it is not in the industry's interest to necessarily be unbiased. Though I guess eventually it could go the other way, where there's so much bias, where people just get tired and want, want something, uh, you know, in the middle more than anything yeah. else but yeah. it really seems like it just comes back to people we need to talk to each other right and to jacob's point on we just need to actually have civil discussion one of the anecdotes that i read on this from congress was that congressmen with c-span televised hearings all this kind of stuff they can't even go up and shake each other's hands after a good debate because their own constituents will tear them to pieces politically because they're showing weakness or they're showing you know any sort of goodwill towards their opponent so it, it just think it just comes down to humanity on some pieces right that that should never happen right how, how can we even think that we're going to be able to work together if that's the type of response to a normal human act right i'm kind of curious if this some of this does come back to the increased flow of information though because when you think about it like the reason that people feel so defensive is probably because they're being told that there's somebody somewhere else in the country who is almost like polar opposite of them and and completely wants to trample their ideas or, or something like that and they feel that or they feel threatened in such a way so they have to embrace a more hardline stance as it, as is almost animal nature you know you just need to defend your territory or whatever you perceive as such um kind of curious if, if that has emerged with with uh i guess social media and things like that where as older newspapers you know you wouldn't exactly print something like that in a newspaper but uh, it's kind of the natural development that's occurred with uh with this ex exchange of ideas on social media you come to realize oh there's there's people play in other places of the country that are completely the opposite as me and uh i don't like that i think absolutely um yeah i, I think you know, like you hit on there alan with you know, newspapers uh, you know, 50 years ago 100 years ago i mean it's a lot harder to say that you know, joe that you live next door to and go to church to he's this vile creature who you know, does X, Y, and Z, and is basically, you know, the scum of the earth. It's like, that's not true. I just had dinner with Joe last night, and like him and his family, they're nice people. You know, but it's so much easier to do it on social media where, you know, you can, you know, say the, the people in, in this state and, and these other states are, they're vile, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I, you know, I don't know who those people are, but yeah, that seems reasonable. Like, yeah, and if you just kind of 
keep hearing that so many times and you start telling yourself and pretty soon yeah you're you're convinced too that you know the uh i'm using examples but yeah that you know these these people in these other regions are are just horrible and and that's that's one more reason i think the uh, increased focus on just kind of a national news cycle is dangerous because um you can get like a lot more of a us versus them mentality i think than you can on a doing it more local scale you completely hit on what I was just about to say about the big uh, us versus them mentality. It, it seems like that is extremely prevalent nowadays and uh, definitely very dangerous, you know, when you get into that uh, type of mindset there. Um, sorry, I, I, I kind of lost my train of thought here. I'll, I'll have somebody else talk. It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me here in a second. We can probably start closing this topic too. I don't know how to do that, but <laughs> yeah, we've definitely been uh, talking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think oh, go for it, Alan. Issue. No, I mean, I, I think this is a, a very, very big topic to, to tackle. Because, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of underlying pieces to it. Um, and not to say the least that there is a large human psychology aspect to all this that, I mean, there's clearly experts out there taking advantage of. Um, I don't know, to me, a lot of this comes down to, you know, there's there's people who would like to see the country operating as a single, cohesive, you know, group, and people who benefit more from it being divided. And I think the issue becomes more of a, not a, a red versus blue, but, a, you know, more of a people who would rather see us work together to do something versus people who would rather see us be divided to do something. Um, I mean, I think that maybe gets a little bit back to, uh, you know, like, what was it divided we, we, or united we stand, divided we fall type mentality? Uh, I mean, I think we hit it a long time ago. I it, it finally came back to me here. So I guess when Jacob, when you mentioned the us versus them mentality, it used to be that infrastructure that was the big bill that everybody could get behind i mean everybody likes roads everybody likes bridges but recently there, there have been some studies done that show that if a certain party um, they bring up an idea the other party's immediately going to say no even if it's something like infrastructure which we've kind of just seen i, I was actually kind of surprised that didn't pass by both parties, I, I guess I understand the Build Back Better plan, why that was something the, you know, the Republicans weren't going to pass because that doesn't agree necessarily with their um, ideals, so to speak. But I, I guess even on polarizing topics, there's definitely this us versus them, and it kind of makes um, both parties look like hypocrites. Um, I would I would say, for uh, for example, the, the masks. And the vaccines recently, I, I've seen it where um, Republicans say, you know, my body, my choice, I don't want to get the vaccine. And then you hear from the Democratic side, well, if it's my body, my choice, why aren't you, you know, pro-choice when it comes to women's rights to reproduction? And they got a very good case there. And then on the flip side, you could turn that back to Democrats where they say, hey, everybody, we should have these vaccine mandates. Everybody needs to do this. But then they're also pro-choice when it comes to women's to women's rights of reproduction, but they're not pro-choice when it comes to vaccines. So it, it's it's kind of one of those where there's there's been a lot of topics like that recently. Um, 
and and to me it's it's just very frustrating to to see us in that kind of back and forth where it would be nice if one party you know would take the high ground of being like yeah i i kind of understand where you where you're coming from but i haven't really seen that done by either party and and unfortunately noah we really haven't (laughs) come up to you know to a good conclusion or good answer to your question here and to be honest i don't know if anybody will and if they do how effective it will be yeah that was that was my thought when we started going into this as well that there, there is no easy, simple solution. Definitely no solution that will for sure work. And yeah, I don't really have much to say beyond that, except America is doomed to fail and we'll all die in the ensuing wars. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, on that note, does anybody have any additional uh, comments? Uh, I can definitely see some concerns about any other comments they want to bring up. Subscribe to your local newspaper. <laughs> there we go. I like it. Well, uh, I, I guess, uh, Alec, be, uh, before we, you know, sign off, uh, can I can I get a little uh, soapbox action from you? I think so, Blake. Okay. Slight shift from our very heavy topic to another heavy topic, perhaps, but I want to inform our listeners a little bit about the concept of a food desert. And I, I think some of our podcast members are very passionate about this a little bit of background on what a food desert is is a area of the country where if you're in an urban population you're at least one mile away from a food source lots of the time you know something that has fresh or high nutrition value food or if you're in a rural area it's somewhere that you're with greater than 10 miles travel distance away from a location like that and uh, by those numbers there's around 20 million people in the united states that are in these type of locations and these exist for lots of different reasons obviously transportation challenges is one of the big factors and that's particularly a problem for low-income families in these areas Um, another is convenience food so lots of these areas have only convenience food style stores and we'll get back to that in just a minute um, another one is added risks for opening supermarkets in these areas. So if it's a inner city, high crime type area, it's a it's a risk for any business owners to open up stores in these areas to provide the local people a good source of food. Um, the one I will focus in on is on the convenience food factor. So a big chain in the United States is called Dollar General, and they're increasing at a ever rapidly increasing rate. And while they do come into these areas and provide some source of food. I think there there's benefits there. It's also can be negative for the local populations and local businesses too, because any local businesses that were previously providing food to these areas are not able to compete with this multinational chain um, coming in and providing much uh, lower priced options or perhaps uh, a little bit of, discriminatory pricing or pricing things not as they should be. Um, But anyway, I would like to just end Soapbox by support your local food stores and uh, think before you make a purchase at a chain store that might not be uh, providing the best economic value to its local community. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you there, Alec, for that uh, additional insightful uh, Soapbox. But with that being said, I guess we'll... Unfortunately, have to end this uh, 
fun and a deep discussion, but as always, keep on rambling.